When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio, and this week we ask, should education last a lifetime? Coming up on the show, we'll be hearing about our special report into lifelong learning. A business model which is much more focused on employment, it's getting much more traction, and you can see ways in which they can start to make some money. And Argentina's Ministers for Education will be explaining the challenges of overhauling their system. We focus on all the programming, digital skills that are very much needed by Google, but you also need more nurses. So I, I really think that we need to get politicians out of the way. <laughs> we need to get ministers out of the way. So I need to get out of the way. So while the pace of technological change has altered so many aspects of society and business, education has remained remarkably static. Internet universities and massive open online courses, known as MOOCs, have for some time made grand promises about the potential of digital technology to revolutionise a sector that's looked rather resilient in the face of disruption. However, these promises never seem quite to be delivered. Education still typically happens in a classroom, and it ends when we join the workforce. But can that model really provide the training and skills we need in modern and changing economies? And how can traditional systems get ahead of the curve? Later on, I'll be talking to the pioneering Argentinian education minister, Esteban Bullrich. But first, I wanted to dig deeper into our report. So I sat down with author Andrew Palmer and Gabriel Zinni. Gabriel is the minister responsible for vocational and technical training in Argentina. But prior to that, he set up a major online company delivering vocational training across Latin America. But first, let's hear from Andrew. So, Andrew, what did you set out to look at in your skills report? So the premise of the report was that the kind of feast and famine model of education, where you have a a one shot of education at the start of your life and then you go into the workforce and you don't need to go back into schooling, is no longer fit for purpose. That the workforce requires skills to change and be developed throughout one's life and therefore one needs to hop back and forth between the worlds of education and employment. The report looked at that and asked what kind of infrastructure is needed in order to to deliver that kind of system. And you can see signs of it emerging. I focus particularly on the States and Europe, and you can see quite an agile system of MOOCs, of specialist providers, of universities, which are shortening and uh, making cheaper their, their offering. But it still has a very long way to go in terms of the mass market of workers. And what's changed recently? Because at the risk of sounding like Methuselah, lifelong learning has been around as a policy objective in education and skills, as both of you will know, for what well, I mean, say in a sort of concentrated way for probably 15 years or something like that. It's still perhaps more in the minds of policymakers than on the ground. Do you see that changing? Are we at an inflection point? I think we are. On both the demand and supply side, things are changing. So on the demand side, you see immense change in labour markets. So technology is hollowing out certain types of skill levels. 
and it's also reducing the premium to college education. So what's happening is that college is required as an entry point into the workforce, but it doesn't necessarily help you to remain employable and attractive throughout your working life. And then on the supply side, the MOOCs, which kind of were hyped to the skies in 2012, they're now moving towards a business model which is much more focused on employment. It's getting much more traction, and you can see ways in which they can start to make some money. MOOCs to MOOCs or... <laughs> Whatever works. Whatever works. So, Gabriel, you run your own online vocational training programs, and now you do something similar for the government in in Argentina. What do you think is changing? I think what Andrew was saying about the lifelong learning need is is key for all countries in Latin America, in particular for Argentina. But on the top of that, we have a current challenge in Argentina where around 20 million people are in the workforce and only 17% of them have a college degree. And 9 million of them don't even have a high school degree. How can we make the majority of those people that don't even have a high school degree in Argentina, don't even have a college degree, be ready for the workforce, the 21st century workforce that is already happening as well in Argentina. So this is not just looking at the future, the guys who are now in primary school on high school. We have a challenge and we are trying to undertake the challenge. How we provide these skills, these professional training centers, MOOCs, but in many places in Argentina you don't even have Wi-Fi. So MOOCs are okay and I think are still for a reduced part of the population, but how can you provide these new skills in all fashion ways to make workforce in Argentina uh, catch up to what the labor demand is, is asking. Well, that's interesting because I'm not exactly suggesting that you're going de-digital, but you were very much associated with the digital push in vocational training. Are you now that you have to do it inside a, a government in quite challenging circumstances economically, more interested in a balance between the digital and what we would call the old hands-on or even classroom approach? I'm still a big fan of the digital. I think that, that especially for these ages, 25 up is, is key to provide more access. What I realize now working in 24 states in Argentina, in, in some places with more vulnerable people and more uh, poorer communities, that sometimes you don't have the access, the internet access. And even though people have Wi-Fi in their phones or they have in, uh, smartphones, they are not enough to get some some of the skills, some electromechanic skills, elect- electricity skills, digital skills uh, themselves are sometimes hard to provide through digital uh, ways. So we are going much more to a blended learning uh, model to get more access to many, many of these communities. I'd be interested to ask, Gabriel, how you deal with the problems of you know, people needing to find time and money um, to educate themselves. That's a, Especially if you're talking about people having to get college-level degrees, right? That implies a, a big investment um, financially and in terms of time. So how, how do you support people to do that? Right, that's a fantastic question. We have in Argentina 4,200 institutions providing vocational technical uh, training with around 1.2 a million students. We need to provide these skills to 5 million, 6 million students. That's where digital is key because we will not be able to have the budget or the execution ability to build, you know, 10,000 more institutions, physical institutions. That's not feasible. And it's not feasible in the short term. Even if you give me all the money in the world to build them, it takes a while, two, three years to do the public bids. So we need to go digital because of that, because we think that it's the only way to get more access to a few more million uh, students. And what we are doing it is partnering with trade unions 
and private sector as well to deliver some of the these skills because we realize it's not just a nice talk to talk about public private partnership if i want to access three more million students from the ones i have now i need to partner with trade unions that understand this as, as much as we do i think and the private sector what you're describing is absolutely what i was finding in the report is that it's a really complex ecosystem where you can't just have a sort of providers of education decide what to provide provide people. You've got to have employers, you've got to have unions, talking with individuals and with government in this very, very complex dialogue about what skills are needed and how you deliver them. And, and people haven't really thought in those terms before. What stops that becoming a bit of a talking shop with vested interests on, on all sides, perhaps pulling in different directions? What examples did you find in your reporting that made you think that this was the way forward? Well, I think employers probably are crucial in stopping that becoming sort of vested interest, right? Employers have a skills need and they can define what it is that they're short of. So to go back to the MOOC world, in Silicon Valley, you have a firm like Udacity, which started off with this vision of kind of universal education. It was all very nice and idealistic. Now what they're doing are things called nano degrees, which are basically aimed at very specific types of skills. You know, it might be Android development, it might be self-driving cars, all sorts of stuff like that, where people are paying to take the course. The course curriculum is designed by the likes of Google, Mercedes, you know, the people who need those skills. And Udacity will offer a money-back guarantee. If you don't find work at the end of it, then you get the costs of tuition back. So that's, that's an example of people sort of working together in new ways. True, but you also need more nurses. You need more than 60,000 nurses in, in Argentina. So I, I sometimes I think that we focus in all the programming, digital skills that are very much needed by Google, but in a country you need a lot of more skills, nursing being one, which requires perhaps two years to become a years to become a nurse and not you cannot do it in, in six months like Udacity or many other ones. But healthcare is a very good example, Andrew, of an area where you could say you simply need a lot more nurses doctors will say the same. But there are disruptions. There are technological disruptions which might suggest that some jobs should be being done differently or should be being uh, done uh, through more digital means. Where were the areas in your report that you thought disruption was either most threatening or perhaps most promising? What one can see is that the market is finding ways to deliver this new kind of model of continuous education in the places where there's most and quickest payback. So that's why coding comes up an awful lot, right? I mean, you, 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 there is an, there's an obvious return to the investment that you make as an individual into, into your education if you, if you code at the moment. Everyone wants that. Um, and you can see sort of the, the numbers are fascinating. It's like a, in the top quartile paying jobs in the States, half of them require coding skills at this point. So there, there's an absolute return to coding. And that's, that's why you see the market working there. Totally take your point, Gabrielle. You know, there are, other, there are other institutions, other occupations, which are going to get disrupted. And one assumes that this is going to spread to them. It's just a bit harder to see the, the kind of the market mechanism at work because the payback is not as, as great and that's where you need government to be involved you need unions right. to be involved in, a, in Argentina is a half a trillion GDP economy and we export 11 billion a year in software so we need more coders for that a small chunk of the economy but for example we are investing now we announce an investment of more than 10 billion in the train system so we need more technical capacities for the train industry, for the plane industry. There's more companies using Buenos Aires and Argentina as a hub. So it's important to, to, to mix, I think, and that's where the government has a very specific role in defining policies for, for, for connecting education and, and work. How much do you 
each of you think that politics and the macro effect of politics and the way policy is being conducted at the, the top matter here? Obviously, Andrew, you've been looking at this in the States just at, at the time when we were running up to Donald Trump's win and him becoming president. And, and Gabriel, uh, Argentinian politics is often a bit of a, a roller coaster ride as well. You're just through your, your election a little while ago and, and into power. But Andrew, first, does it make much difference what happens in Washington? I think it does in the sense that this adds to the urgency around the whole the whole debate. If you look at unemployment rates by education levels, then there is a clear return to more and more education. So you have a, a stock of low-skilled people in the States who suffer disproportionately from unemployment and whose work is threatened disproportionately by technological change. And you have a president and a populist movement which has their interests right at the centre of their agenda. So how exactly that translates into action is the question, but I think it is front and centre in the way that people think about things. Gabriel, how is this plagued into the the government in Argentina? And often that that sense that, I won't exactly say things hang by a a thread, but it's quite easy to be pushed off course politically. I think compared to what Andrew was saying, in our countries in Argentina, politics sometimes is much more important because the role of the government is much bigger than the U.S. economy. The, the U.S. economy can keep going and the president can move this or that, but, but still you have a, an economy moving apart from politics. In, in Argentina, politics is essential to, to the economy, and in that way, how politicians define the development model or the production model or what industries they want to support or they want to not support will define as well the skills agenda. Our government is supporting the train industry because we need better transportation in Argentina or the plane industry because the same reason. So the skills agenda sometimes goes very much aligned to partisan politics because the political parties are the one defining these developing models that in many developed countries don't don't work like that anymore. Gabriel Zinni, Andrew Palmer, thank you very much. And if you've any thoughts or experiences of online education, do get in touch. Let us know how it was for you. We're at Economist Radio on Twitter and you can send us emails to radio at economist.com. Now, alongside Gabriel here in London was his boss, the Argentinian Minister of Education, Esteban Bullrich. He's been in the job for just over a year, but prior to that, he developed a global reputation as Minister for Education for the city of Buenos Aires, where he undertook a radical programme of reform. Though it was controversial, not least with the unions, it saw Buenos Aires' schools rapidly climb the rankings. They now number among the best in Latin America. So he has to try and bring the same kind of change to the whole of the country. Esteban, you've been in post for just over a year now. What have you sought to address there in terms of education outcomes in Argentina? I think the most important thing was to uh, really send a message that the change needed to be implemented in two ways. One, on the way the system looked at students, 21st century education needs to be very personalized. And so the system has to really look at each student as a single classroom. At the same time, we need to do a lot of changes in the way teachers are trained in the initial training and ongoing training. To achieve all of this, we need to make sure that all kids can go into schools when they turn three. Uh, early childhood education was something that we looked at. Infrastructure and technology, we started a process of connecting all schools of Argentina to Internet. Significant challenge given the huge 
distances that we have geographically, but also the diversity of landscapes we have, no? from highest mountains to lowlands. But using satellite technology that was developed by the previous government and also current developments, we started the project. And you'd had a successful record in Buenos Aires as, as a reformer. How difficult was it to scale that up, not just given the geographical challenges, but just the, you know, the sheer variety of the country and some of the political tensions. Yeah. You were a new government, but you know, in quite difficult economic circumstances. The biggest challenge would be and to deal with the federal system in the country, because I need to work knowing that the schools are managed by each province. So we have 24 different provinces, and I have to persuade all of the, uh, those ministers to believe in the change and to implement the change. And so both through persuasion, but also through the use of incentives, trying to make sure that there is understanding that we need to go on that direction, but at the same time, making sure that even if that minister or myself are not there anymore, there are incentives in the system that will keep on the education policy going. In the context of Argentina, that weft, that interplay of forces mm-hmm. between the trade unions, the government, policy makers, it can be particularly difficult to manage. I remember when you were doing the job in Buenos Aires and, and you were having difficulties with the, the unions, you, you put out your mobile telephone <laughs> number and, and asked them to call you. Uh, have you continued this generous offer to all the trade unions and teachers but... in Argentina? <laughs> Yes, I did. And and I think it's a huge tool in this idea of trying to convince that we really want to be at the teacher's services. I think the ministry should be basically a facilitator for teachers to achieve the most innovative practices, access to the most innovative schools. So we favor, you know, exchange programs with teachers. During December and January, we're going to have 100 headmasters in in the U.S. through the Fulbright Fellowship, which is a a significant change from the policy of using those fellowships. And so in, in general terms, I think we need to support teachers' work and give more independence and more autonomy to the school's uh, units. So you say give more autonomy, but often teachers as organised labour don't really like that very much. They don't like it very much in Britain and they haven't <laughs> liked it very much in, in, in large parts of, of Latin America. So True. saying, you know, please, we support you while you innovate, while it sounds like the perfect policy paradigm, often doesn't reflect the the cultural role of the trade unions. But but I think it is true, And but two things. One, I, th- I don't think the necessary that the trade union leadership reflects always the feeling and beliefs of the teachers. And the second thing, at least in Argentina, school leaders were not trained to be autonomous. So training has to change, and that's one uh, particular thing we did change. We're actually uh, even trying to implement in the next year two separate careers. So in Argentina, if you want to be a headmaster, it would be one career. If you want to be a teacher, it would be a totally different career. And they should be. And you should be able to earn as much money in each one of them. Today in Argentina, uh, there is a point in time where the teacher just cannot earn more money unless they jumped into the leadership school headmaster career. And I think that's a huge problem that, uh, that needs to be solved. The OECD says that one of the biggest factors in developing education reform is continuity and continuity of leadership in systems. That can be difficult given the twists and turns of, mm-hmm. of, of politics. Do you think that you will be able to to hang on to that role and to deepen your, your reforms? And, and what would be your pitch to say to changeable 
politics well, in Argentina. Yeah, keep me on. I think and that, that if you achieve this autonomy for schools and by being autonomous, autonomous you are saying you're not as dependent on the political system as before, then you're going into a continuity. So I, I really think that we need to get politicians out of the way. <laughs> we need to get ministers out of the way. So I need to get out of the way. Um, so what we are trying to build is a system that is going to be run by itself and not by the politicians in, in, in office. Esteban, thank you very much. Thank you. Do keep your comments and your emails coming in. You may not have my private number, but you can always get something through to me via Twitter at Economist Radio or by sending us emails to radio at economist.com. Well, that's it for this week's Economist Asks. In London, this is The Economist. 